at my welcome to you all today. My name is Greg Durenberger, senior pastor of Emmaus Road Church. I want to invite you to turn to the book of Exodus. We're going to be giving our attention to God's Word in Exodus chapters 13 and 14. <clears throat> it's our custom on the first Sunday of each month to remember the most important event in all history, that is the sacrificial and substitutionary death of our Lord Jesus, who is the Christ. And our aim in doing so is to, to maintain this practice, to, to, this practice of keeping the gospel the main thing, the most central thing. And whereas the crucifixion of Jesus is the most significant event in all of history, perhaps the most famous event in the Old Testament, at least one of the most famous events in the Old Testament, is the crossing of the Red Sea by the people of Israel. My prayer is that it will be evident that what we're going to be doing after contemplating this text that is, remembering Jesus' death through the Lord's Supper, that is the practical application of this text. It's the practical application of this narrative of the crossing of the Red Sea. So I'm going I'm to drop in to this passage, and I'm going to begin reading at Exodus chapter 14, verse 1. And if you're able, as an expression of reverence and regard and respect for God's Word, please stand. And follow along. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahirot between Migdol and the sea in front of Baal Zephon. And you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they're wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we've let Israel go from serving us? And so he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pihar wrote in front of Baal Zephon. 
And when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. This is the word of God. Bow with me in prayer. Lord, you you alone do have the words of life. And it is according to your word that with the Holy Spirit, you create new life. You create spiritual life where there was deadness. And you bring revelation. You bring illumination so that we would agree with you what is righteous and what is unrighteous. And we would would agree with you that there is none righteous except our Lord Jesus and those who entrust themselves to him. Lord, would you accomplish what only your Holy Spirit and your word can do among us today? Produce a people alive to you who love you and give glory to you and rejoice in you and their souls are satisfied in you. Do this, O God, for your name's sake. Amen. may be seated. Well, I believe that God's purpose in this passage may be summarized in a single phrase, and that phrase is recorded in Exodus chapter 14, verse 13. See the salvation of the Lord. This is God's passion. This is God's purpose, that all the earth, might see his salvation and know that he is the Lord. Two times in Exodus chapter 14, once in verse 4, and then again in verses 17 and 18, God says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. That's because God means for us to see his glory. To see his saving acts. And God means for us to praise him and exult in him 
for who he is. As revealed in Exodus chapter 34, verse 7, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we saw the beginning of God's gracious and miraculous deliverance of his people from Egypt in Exodus chapter 12. But then in chapter 13, God does something unanticipated. Rather than leading Israel out of the land by the shortest and most direct route, which we would do, God instead directs them south toward the wilderness, according to Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people of God go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. Why? Why would he do that? For or because God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God instead led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Verse 21, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. So God directed them the long way around so that they would not be tempted to go back to Egypt, to, to go back to slavery. But then, then the, the same Lord who delivered Israel from Egypt and positioned Israel so that they would not be inclined to return to Egypt, God intentionally leads them into a trap. God positions them with the Red Sea on the one side and Pharaoh's highly experienced, highly mobile army on the other side. What is God doing? Wasn't the whole reason for steering clear of the well-paved trade route along the Mediterranean because of this danger posed by the Philistine army? God restrains his people from the danger of one army only to enclose them and trap them in the crosshairs of another army. The very army from which they had just been miraculous sa miraculously saved. What is this? Boxed in. And the entire strength of the Egyptian army. 600 chariots. Oh, and all the other chariots with officers and horses and horsemen and, did we mention chariots, and, and all bearing down on them. There, there's just no going back now, even if they wanted to. And they feel betrayed by the God they've trusted. And, and with raging sarcasm, they cry, is it because there are no graves in Egypt? E Egypt was... Uh, a nation with more land dedicated to burying dead bodies than any other nation. Just, just think pyramids. Is it because there's nowhere in Egypt to bury dead people that you brought us out here to die in the wilderness? What have you done? We'd rather live as slaves than die. And, and Moses, in this moment, in a moment that would have 
surely provoked even the most self-differentiated leader, says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. Because the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see them again. So, how's that for communicating a non-anxious presence in a very highly anxious situation. You just think, well done, Moses. And instead of commending Moses, the Lord corrects Moses for doing something. This seems so right. Verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Wouldn't you expect God to direct his rebuke toward the Israelites? They're the ones that are freaking out. But Moses represents the people to God and before God, and therefore God's rebuke is communicated to Moses as their covenant representative. And when the Lord instructs Moses to use his staff, an instrument rich with, you know, had no power in and of itself, but is a symbol of God's power and God's authority. Verse 16 says, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. I venture to say that neither Moses nor the people saw this coming. How are we going to get out of this? Head to the sea. There's just no category in anybody's mind for what is about to happen. And, and remember, we're talking about two million people plus their herds of livestock and whatever else they could carry. Those of you with small children, you know how long it takes to get going on a Sunday morning, right? Getting this multitude moving would have been a massive undertaking. And then God explains how it's, how it's going to go down. Verse 17 and 18. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots, and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. This was so far outside the realm of any human experience. Strictly divine activity. God is about to act at a precise moment, in a precise situation, where there is absolutely no hope for escape. And he's going to do it in such a way that there is abs it's just absolutely clear to all who it is that should receive the glory for their rescue. Throughout the Bible, God is at his best when there's no hu hope Humanly speaking, just think about this. Who is in the best position to experience the glory of God? 
those who are backed into a corner. It's in the darkest hour when there's no way out, humanly speaking, no apparent hope, humanly speaking, when God displays his most glorious work. So and then verse 19 says, Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved when behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So, you know, along with everything else that's going on here, an angel appears, and this pillar of cloud is repositioned, and it's all happening. It's all happening in order to keep the Egyptians in the dark so as to hinder the Egyptians from attacking the Israelites. And the pillar of cloud and this fire, it inflicts an inability on the Egyptians to navigate, and it provides at this very same time light for Israel, hindering one, helping the other, and this, it, it bought the Israelites some time, time to pack up, head out towards the Red Sea. You see, the Lord is not only guiding them, and not only protecting them, He's keeping His promise to fight for them. So, again, meditating, contemplating, musing. <laughs> Imagine what it must have been like for two million people trying to get underway while, while all, all this is going on before them and above them and behind them. I mean, how do you focus on keeping little Jacob and baby Joseph on the cart while the heavens are filled with these visible manifestations of the glory of God. And, and then comes the moment that we've all been waiting for. Verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. So raising the staff, stretching it out, so, so as to assure everyone that, that what's going on is an act of God to save his people, and then the, the incomprehensible happens. You know, it, it, it wasn't like, this, this was some option that everybody had anticipated, right? Um, oh, yeah, called this one. <laughs> Dude, perfect. You know, told you it was coming. To, the loved ones, this is at the darkest hour. God puts on display his unrivaled power, and there's just no other explanation. God is sovereign over creation. God is sovereign over nature. Listen to the eyewitness account in verse 22. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall of water on their right hand and on their left. What would that have been like? 
to experience a, a massive body of water suddenly split into. And a pathway of dry ground formed between two walls of water. And try to imagine two, people, two million people hiking through this path. One scholar speculates it must have been a half mile wide in order to accommodate such a multitude as they passed through during the last watch of the night between 2 and 6 a.m. Computer-generated graphics simply could never do this justice. And, and then in verse 23, this highly, the highly experienced, fast, mobile Egyptian army foolishly races right in. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And, and they, they find themselves up against it, up against divine opposition as the Lord himself fights for his people. Verse 24, in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. The psalmist in uh, Psalm 77 offers a little different vantage point of the, the kind of horror that the Egyptians faced. Psalm 77 verse 17 says, The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So, so it is, it's just a rather mind-bogglingly terrifying situation. Their, their chariots which were a symbol of their strength and superiority. That's why the, narr the narrator repeats it again and again and again about the chariots and then the chariots and all the chariots and 600 chariots and then more chariots. They're just nothing. Clogged wheels, broken axles, frightened horses, panicking soldiers, thunder, lightning, torrential rain, earthquake. It's just total Chaos as they are opposed by God. And so they cry, the Egyptians, they cry in Exodus 14.25, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And then, their time was up. Verse 26, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared and as the Egyptians fled into it, 
the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea, and the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, all of the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. A display of the glory of divine justice. That's what it is. In response to Pharaoh and his attempts at killing the Israelites, it is divine justice. Divine justice for Pharaoh's attempted infanticide. Divine justice for Pharaoh's murder of the firstborn Israelites in the Nile, tried to drown them. It was a fitting way for them to die by drowning because they had once attempted to drown the sons of Israel. A display of God's glory in a dark, dark hour. But an even more astonishing exhibit of God's glory is on display. And that is the display of God's gracious salvation of Israel. Verse 29 says, But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And then the summary of it all. Verse 30 says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. See the salvation of the Lord. They saw it. They saw the salvation of the Lord. All those dead bodies. They were a sign, a visible display of God's salvation. The glory of God's saving word. They saw the salvation of the Lord. It was an exclamation point on the ending of 430 years of slavery in a foreign land. The redemption of Israel from slavery was accomplished, was finished. And they were now free, free to serve the Lord and free to make their way to the land that God had promised. The Lord had fulfilled part one of his promise to Abraham. They now had a new life. They now had a new identity. They were a new people. And now they're headed for part two, the new land. And in verse 31, the narrator describes how it all affected, how it all just landed on the people. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so that the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. So God's passion to put His glory on display in order to share His joy in it with His people. What matters most is not merely that they're safe. What matters is that their hope and their trust are in Him and reverence toward Him and their satisfaction in Him. Some might say, wow, you know, if I, if I saw what the Israelites saw, it would stir up reverence in me. <laughs> it would establish confidence in me. 
But I've never seen anything like what the people of Israel saw. Friends, actually, actually, if you are a Christian, then you have witnessed something greater, much greater, much, much greater, because the exodus of which we, of just, we just read, it's, it's just a preview. It's just a preview. It's just the teaser for the greater exodus that is to come, namely the exodus of the saving work of Jesus Christ. The first exodus prepares the way for the greater glory displayed in and through the gospel. That's what this text is all about. That's what what we're going to do in a few moments is all about. Philip Ryken writes, At this point, some preachers would invite their congregation to identify their own Red Sea experiences and trust God to bring them through. However, this misses the point. Israel's passage through the sea is not primarily intended to teach us what to do when we are in spiritual trouble. Rather, it is meant to teach us something about coming to God for salvation. So, just before now we observe the Lord's Supper, I want to draw your attention to one, just one more compelling New New Testament illustration of how we should apply the Exodus to our lives. Turn for a moment, if you would, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 30 and 31. In this text, Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration. If you're familiar with the story, there is this amazing display again of the glory of Christ. And in this transfigured moment, Jesus is carrying on a conversation. There's a a little convo happening between Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Luke 9.30 says, Behold, two men were talking with him, that is Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So in this conversation between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, there's really only one topic The topic of conversation that was happening had to do with his departure. The departure of Jesus. That is the impending death of Jesus on the cross. It's going to happen in Jerusalem. And the Greek word for departure is exodus. They're talking about the greater exodus. In his really, really helpful book, Christ Crucified, Donald McLeod writes, the cross, the cross is all Moses and Elijah want to talk about. Get them together. What do they want to talk about? The greater exodus, the departure, the cross. Moses and Elijah aren't talking with Jesus simply about his death. 
They're talking with Jesus about the significance of his death. That is, the significance of Jesus' death as the greater exodus. The exodus Moses had witnessed. Moses was an eyewitness to. The exodus that Moses led. Listen, he didn't get it done. Moses was not able to lead the people into the promised land. He died on Mount Nebo in view of the promised land. But Christ has now come. And Christ has come to complete what Moses was not able to complete. And no one could be more excited to think about it, talk about it, buzz about it, than Moses. What he could not do completely, Jesus, by his death and resurrection, has completely done. And just as Israel needed rescue, loved ones, so we need to be rescued. For we can't save ourselves. Our bondage to sin is, oh, so, so far worse of an enslavement than Israel's enslavement to Pharaoh. We too are trapped. We too are boxed in with no way out. There's no human options for deliverance from our sin and the righteous wrath of God against our sin. The greater exodus is necessary. And in our darkest hour, the best news possible is that one greater than Moses has come. And he has come to lead that exodus through his sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross for sinners like you and like me. If you're a Christian here today, trusting Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins... You've already witnessed the most glorious display of deliverance ever accomplished in and through the death and resurrection of Christ. It's, It's way bigger than deep waters parted. It should engender love for Jesus. It should stir affection for Jesus. It should give rise to confident Reliance upon Jesus and a glad obedience to Jesus. And for those of you who are here today who have yet to participate in this exodus, if you have not yet trusted in Jesus for your deliverance from your bondage to sin, then I I have no greater joy and privilege than to announce to you The sea remains open for you today. It remains parted. You can run across it right now. And it remains parted for you to cross through repentance and faith, trusting in the exodus provided by the crucified and risen Christ. This sea is, it's it's parted for you today and it will remain parted Until you die. And because you don't know when you're going to die. You do not want to postpone stepping onto that path. Our prayer for you is that instead of drowning in God's wrath. That you would run and you would make your way through the sea. That has been parted for you by the cross of Jesus Christ. Whoever you are. Men, women, children. 
calling on the name of Jesus, trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you may experience the greater exodus that we are about to commemorate yet again. So, let's pray together. So, Lord, a a well-known story points us to the greatest story ever told. An, An account of a great salvation points to the greatest act of salvation ever accomplished. And Lord, we're asking now that by the kindness of your mercy and steadfast love and by the working of your Holy Spirit, there might be sweet illumination to what a gift we've been given. What a way of salvation has been made. What freedom from enslavement, what cleansing and forgiveness and righteousness has been accomplished. We exult in you, Lord Jesus. We exult in you for what you've done.